Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. That God would come. And not just that God would come, but that God would come and do right. That God would come and wipe away the tears. That God would come and bring justice. That God would come and right the wrongs. Heal the pain. Stop the oppressor. Malachi has a word to us, though, that there should be at least a little bit of trembling when we pray for such a thing. This is what Malachi said. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? If you read, uh, you'd be familiar with uh, Ellie Weissel, if you read Night, his story of uh, losing his family, most of his family, during the Holocaust, the questions that that raised for him. His mother and father uh, died. He was with his father in Auschwitz, but his, uh, his dad hit the gas chamber uh, just two or three weeks before liberation happened. He and two of his sisters made it to North America, and he recounts that story in night. But he talks about coming home each day from school when he was a kid. And his mom never asked, how was your day? Never asked, uh, did you learn anything? Never asked, did you enjoy your day at school? But he remembers his mom always asking, did you have a good question today? Did you have a good question today? Having a good question can make all the difference. In Malachi, for the Jews who had returned home after exile, they had been taken away from their homeland, and God's mercy, they had been brought back. Malachi tells us that they were asking some inadequate questions. They were asking some questions that revealed some misguided assumptions that would do them harm. In chapter 2, just before the reading that we had today, this is one of the questions. Malachi tells the people, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? We've wearied him by saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So hold down to that for a moment. And then later in chapter 3, he reveals another question they were asking. You have spoken harsh words against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What do we profit by keeping his commandment or by going about as mourners before the Lord of hosts? Now we count the arrogant as happy. Evildoers not only prosper, but when they put God to the test, they escape. So it seems like there were two particular questions that Malachi felt like 
were unfair and misguided and ultimately harmful. The first question was, God, why aren't you giving those wicked people what they deserve? And the second question was, God, why aren't we receiving all the prosperity we deserve? In other words, God, why aren't you coming here and doing everything we expect for you to do? Now, this is really tricky, and we have to be very careful here because these could be really fair questions born out of confusion or broken hearts or even anger. And elsewhere in, in this book, Malachi models, much like the Psalms, the brave and honorable audacity of confronting God with our perplexing and disturbing concerns. God can handle any of this. God can handle our questions. But it seems that here at least God was encountering something different. These particular questions asked in these particular ways with this kind of motivation seem to reveal a kind of self-righteous fixation on the wickedness of others while carrying an inflated sense of their own rightness. It revealed an expectation that God's job is to do what we expect God to do. And it's pretty hard to read the Bible and not walk away saying that's always going to lead us into a very difficult place. The people of Israel, it seemed, were operating off of the law of retribution. The wicked were supposed to pay, and of course we all know who the wicked are. And if you don't, I'd be more than happy to tell you. And then, not only are the wicked to pay, but I am to be rewarded. But God is not concerned about retribution. God is concerned about renewal. And those are two very different things. So this scripture arrives to us in Advent because it is the word the prophet Malachi spoke to God's people as they waited for the Messiah to come and to act to appear. And it is the word to all of us who are waiting for God to come. All of us who are waiting for God to act all of us who have begun to believe that perhaps God just doesn't appear. Now, last week we said that this kind of anticipation that Advent evokes is awe and wonder. It's watching and preparing for a grand arrival, for hope, for new possibilities. This is absolutely true. But it's also critical for us to remember exactly who it is we're asking to come. We're dealing with God here. And when God comes, none of us are in control. We don't get to control the outcomes. When God comes and we encounter the living Holy One, we are undone. We're undone along with the whole of creation. And we are remade 
along with the whole of creation. This is what Malachi said. Indeed, God is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And then there's this powerful and beautiful imagery. For this one who comes is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. This coming God is the fire that refines. This fire that burns away all the impurity, all of the evil. Thankfully also burning all of the sorrows and the wounds and the weight of evil memories. There's the idea here of a, of, of a, of a raging fire and the, the, the elements are in the fire and it's being purified and all of the stuff that is impure and uh, uh, ruinous to these materials is, is pulled off of the top. And the moment that they would know that it was pure is when it was so clear on the top that the one looking in could see the reflection of their own face. I love that imagery. It's as if this refining fire of God burns until our true self is what we see. All of the lies, all the things that we've taken on, all of the things that we've tried to put on, all of the ways we've tried to be something for someone somewhere, all the ways that we've taken on the expectations around us, the lies we've believed about ourselves that that burns away and burns away and burns away and then we see the beloved beauty that God sees we see all the the glory that God sees this as i was uh, reflecting on this again this morning what i most felt was this is uh, in my life i think this is what i want to do for my sons I want to be a presence of God in their life that helps participate in burning away the things that aren't true, the things that hold us back. And if I'm really honest about it, I I want a few people to be God's presence like this for me in my own life. This adventing God is the refining fire, but also, also the fuller's soap. It's the kind of soap that scrubs hard, fluffs up, makes something full is the idea here. It's like the old washboards. I mean, you would rub that stuff to death, get all the stuff that needs to be washed off off, and then you sort of beat into it. I mean, I, I never did this, but I've seen old movies, right? And, and you beat it, and, and it's fluffed up, and it's, it's fresh. Some of y'all know that Miska makes, uh, makes uh, soap. And whenever she makes soap, uh, it's a, quite a process. And she usually does it when uh, I'm the only one who's home during the day. And it's great. I mean, she has the, the science goggles, um, the, spe- the long gloves, because she messes with lye. And I didn't even know this, but lye is like really dangerous stuff. And she always gives me the warning. She says, don't go in here. Don't touch this. And yet, this is the very stuff that's used to clean our bodies every day. This is what, what God is for us. 
But God is not just the fire and the fuller soap. Malachi actually changes the imagery right after this and says that God is actually the refiner and the purifier. This is God start to finish. And there's no way quite around this fact that part of this is painful. <laughs> to go through the fire, to be scrubbed clean, to be transformed, to have the lies revealed, to see the truth of things up close, this is no child's play. God is doing something here. The holy is creating again. I remember uh, reading um, Handel's uh, letter he wrote to a friend after the first performance of the Messiah and all of the, the rage that sort of uh, built up after that. In his letter, he said, I should be sorry if I only entertained them. I wanted to make them better. You see, this is another side of awe and wonder. Encountering something larger than us more powerful than us. Facing a God before whom the only same thing, sane thing to do is to relent. A God who is actually powerful enough to heal us and to heal our world. But to be healed, to be purified, to have, to have to relinquish the old lies and the old self and then to be restored into our true self this is serious business. This will cost us. It will require at times a reckoning of our life. It will change us. And if we say that we want God to come, we'd best hold on to our seat. It may even get bumpy before it gets clear. This is... It's hope indeed. It's the kind of hope sturdy enough to actually make the hopes come true. But it's probably not an easy word for a holiday greeting. This is the kind of hope that makes you tremble a little bit. Sometimes I think that we need to recognize what exactly it is we're asking for whenever we ask God for justice. It is a prayer of our hearts, but it probably ought not to be something we pray too easily. Because at least in the words of Malachi, the, the justice begins with us. <laughs> I'm actually struck by this. In fact, if you read Malachi, uh, the first place where God lands in all this is with the Levites. Those who were had as their livelihood leading the community of God. They are the first ones where God's judgment landed and said, we've got actually problems here. <laughs> the people wanted retribution, but God wants renewal. The people were consumed with division, with those people who need to be fixed, and of course with us who need to be blessed. But God works toward wholeness. The whole world is in trouble. And we're all going to be healed together. But this wholeness does mean we have to burn away the disease, the ruin, the infection. We have to wash away all the sin and the lies and the mess. And for Israel, when God came, God was going to burn with them first. 
They had done injustice, and at least in Malachi, this was the injustice that God highlights. They had oppressed workers with unfair wages. They had forgotten widows and refused to care for orphans. They had cast aside and marginalized the aliens, those they thought didn't belong in their land. They were adulterers and had been unfaithful in their covenant relationships. And most troubling, this is what he says right at the end. And you do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is a difficult thing because I know uh, we are the children or some of us are the children of a particular kind of American Christianity that was fear top to bottom. And scripture actually says that perfect love casts out fear. Scripture also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. There is a kind of holy stillness, a hesitation to presume too much, a humility that bends the heart and the ear and the life toward God, that is due a generous and a mighty father but this is entirely unlike the fear we know in this world that stems from violent rage or the words of rejection or vengeful hate. That kind of fear, it strikes us with terror, but it never moves our heart. The fear, or I actually think a really good word here is the awe of God, has nothing to do with that. The fear or the awe of God pierces our heart and it pulls us out of our small story into the light. It makes us reckon with the fact that we are not the God of the universe. <laughs> it actually relinquishes us from the burden of having to carry that kind of weight. But it asks us to bend. It's also why I could never say that God never judges us. In fact, the scripture says pretty plainly that I am coming here in judgment. But it's not the kind of judgment that we experience among the violent and untrustworthy powers or religious leaders or family members of this world. When God's judgment comes, it's the kind of judgment that's powerful enough to say, this is wrong and this is right. This is your true self. This is your false self. This will destroy you. This will make you who you truly are. This will bring you wholeness. This will bring you wholeness. This will bring you ruin. This I'm going to remove. This I'm going to heal. And this is the God that we ask to come for us. We ask God and then we both tremble and we rejoice. Because the God who comes is the God of infinite, endless mercy. If we ever doubt for a single moment whether God's heart for us is unceasingly good and generous and kind, we look to Jesus. 
if we ever question whether or not God is powerful enough to do what he has promised in this world where it seems like everything else is far more powerful, we look to the Father God who rules over all and his Son, Christ, and we say with hope and expectation, we will bend to this God in trust, and we will actually rebuke all of the fear that the world has pressed upon us, and we will put ourselves humbly into the mercy of our God who is strong and good and kind. And we say with God's people across time and history, come, Lord Jesus. But we say that with a sense of awe, knowing that trust and faith is the only proper way to pray such a prayer. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.